that doesn't get talked about enough in the world of inclusive marketing are the ethics associated with it. Now, you know, I'm a big proponent of brands engaging and serving people from underrepresented and underserved communities. But to be quite honest, there are times when I do wish brands wouldn't focus on specific communities and would just leave them alone. Why? Because in certain instances, brands do more harm than good when engaging with certain underrepresented and underserved communities. So when it comes to ethics or moral principles, as it relates to inclusive marketing, it really boils down to this, do no harm. That's it. Simple to remember, but for some, perhaps not so simple to practice. So after this short break, I'm going to walk you through the kind of harm marketers can cause in their efforts to engage and include people from underrepresented and underserved communities, as well as what doing no harm looks like and how you should be thinking about it in your day to day. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's Latinx in Power, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. This podcast features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insight from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their fields. I like listening to this podcast because I like hearing from a broad diversity of voices and hearing from and learning from their experiences. One episode I'm super excited to dive into is the latest one, Lead Generation Journey with Glenville Dixon Jr. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so here are five ethical considerations for brands as it relates to inclusive marketing. First up is exploitation or predatory practices. So in 2008, in the US, we experienced a housing crisis where basically the market crashed. People, myself included, because I bought at almost the top of the market in late 2006 for my first home. Anyway, we lost lots of money when the value of our homes decreased. The culprit of this economic crisis that negatively impacted so many people, many folks say it was a rise of predatory mortgage lending. Investopedia describes predatory lending this way. Predatory lending puts many borrowers at risk, but it primarily targets those with few credit options or who are vulnerable in other ways. People whose inadequate income leads to regular or an urgent needs for cash to make ends meet, those with low credit scores, those with less access to education, or those subject to discriminatory lending practices because of their race, ethnicity, age, or disability. David K. Musto is a finance professor at the Wharton School of Business, and he's also the co-author of the paper Predatory Lending in a Rational World. He described predatory lending this way, I make a loan to you that reduces your expected welfare. And that's really at the heart of predatory marketing practices, particularly for people who are part of underrepresented and underserved communities. My position is that it is unethical and predatory for brands to specifically target marginalized communities with products, services, and experiences that reduces their expected welfare. Governments and plenty of organizations recognize the harm that predatory practices and predatory marketing can cause. 
That's why in the U.S., the FTC has issued guidelines and laws that regulate and restrict deceptive marketing to children under 13 years of age. Children are a protected group from predatory marketing, but unfortunately, lots of adults in communities who are already marginalized and vulnerable are the target of marketing that reduces their expected welfare. Research shows that alcohol availability in advertising is disproportionately concentrated in racial, ethnic minority communities. I'm going to drop links to all these things that I'm referencing in the show notes because it's a lot. We're covering a lot today. And I want you to have these resources to dig into these data points more. Anyway, one article in Medical News Today showed results of data that highlighted the following. Research shows a growing disparity between ads aimed at marginalized groups versus their white peers. Fast food restaurants such as McDonald's, Domino's, and Taco Bell spent over $1.5 billion on TV ads in 2019 to target Black and Hispanic kids. In 2019, Black youth viewed 75% more fast food ads than their white peers, while no healthy items were promoted on Spanish-language TV. The article also highlights a growing body of evidence that has found a strong link between obesity rates in children and an increase in advertising of less nutritious foods, including fast food. In Chiapas, Mexico's southernmost and poorest state, consumption of Coke products and other sugary drinks are highest in the world, A 2019 study by the Chiapas and Southern Border Multidisciplinary Research Center, known as SIMSUR, found that residents of Chiapas, which this data includes both adults and children, residents of Chiapas drink on average 2.2 liters of soda a day. Woo! Woosa, woosa, woosa. Marketing works. And because it works... Brands and marketers have an immense amount of power. And with that power comes a tremendous responsibility to operate ethically by not engaging in marketing practices, which includes marketing products and services to people that will reduce their expected welfare. Even more so when we're talking about people and communities that are already vulnerable because of systemic and societal forces that make it harder for them to thrive. As a marketer, let's not engage in the unethical practice of preying on vulnerable communities with products that will not leave them better off than the way you found them. Okay, the second ethical consideration that I want you to think through is all about appropriation. Appropriation is another unethical practice that is especially relevant when we're talking about inclusive marketing. I did an entire episode on cultural appropriation, episode 21, Cultural Appropriation and Inappropriate Use of a Culture Not Your Own. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes for you to access it so you can go and have a listen. Here's one definition of cultural appropriation. It's the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of customs, practices, and ideas of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant people or society. Basically, cultural appropriation is taking something that has deep-rooted history, tradition, and meaning in one culture and then using it for your own benefit without ever acknowledging or providing royalties to the communities it's originated from. In my book, 
cultural appropriation is just plain stealing. It is not okay. Now, we've seen a lot of cultural appropriation in fashion over the years. A few years ago, the Secretary of Culture of Mexico sent a notice to fashion brands Zara, Anthropology, and Patel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, hopefully so, claiming some of their designs use patterns from some of their indigenous groups in Oaxaca. The minister asked for a public explanation on what basis it could privatize collective property. Now, the Mexico Culture Ministry called for benefits that these brands gain from using those designs that should be awarded to the communities behind them. Let's talk about a different kind of appropriation that is more common and can still cause harm. There's the use of AAVE, African-American Vernacular English, that many brands engage in. AAVE is a common way Black people in the U.S. communicate with each other in their everyday conversation. Part of the challenge, which exists with a lot of cultural appropriation, is that people from certain communities, in this case, Black people, are often shamed or even denied opportunities when they use or engage in elements of their culture. Black people who use AAVE are often viewed as unprofessional or even intellectually inferior when using it. But those same activities or cultural elements are viewed as trendy when people from dominant cultures latch onto it. AAVE is one of those things. So interesting to note, the Linguistic Society of America issued a statement on AAVE defending its use and legitimacy by African Americans. Here's part of what they wrote. The systemic and expressive nature of the grammar and pronunciation patterns of the African American vernacular has been established by numerous scientific studies over the past 30 years. Characterizations of AAVE as slang, mutant, lazy, defective, ungrammatical, or broken English are incorrect. Okay, so let's get to the appropriation part with AAVE. Now, we're seeing a proliferation of non-Black people and even brands using AAVE, of course, without acknowledging its origins, particularly the Black community and the Black queer community. And then these non-Black people and brands are not receiving any of the negative associations or consequences that come with using AAVE. Here's how Nikki Lane, an assistant professor at Spelman College, described how hearing non-Black people using AAVE makes her feel. You care about what we say. You're interested in how we speak. You're interested in taking things from us because language is cultural production. It's something that Black folks create together. So you'll take that, but you won't take us. When brands and non-Black people use AAVE without crediting Black people or the origins of the term, it is a form of erasure of the contributions of Black people to the culture. So the use of the Be Like meme that is commonly seen on social media is a form of appropriating AAV. I've seen a variation of this meme countless times on social. So here's one that I saw. It says... Brands be like, we really like your content, but we have a limited budget. Now, the lower on in the visual of this, it says the campaign brief, and it shows a blonde white woman fully made up with flowers on her head. And then it contrasts that with the budget, which is a distressed cartoon character with hamburgers on his head. 
I'll drop a link to this image along with a blog post from the writer's room that has a detailed description of the origin of Be Like, along with five other AAVE terms brands are using, such as it's giving and tea. I'll put all that in the show notes for you. You really got to see this one and see these memes to really get it and understand. Let's avoid appropriation in all its forms. A third area that brings with it some ethical concerns from an inclusive marketing standpoint is extraction. Extraction is a big problem when it comes to inclusive marketing. And honestly, it comes from a place where brands are acting in a manner that is fully focused on their own financial interests that happens at the expense of people. So extraction comes as an ethical concern because it causes harm to communities that are already marginalized. I cover this topic more in depth back in episode 14, way back when. Are you taking more than you give? I'll drop a link to it, like always, in the show notes so you can have a listen to it. And that's really what extraction is in this context. You are only taking from the underrepresented and underserved communities and doing nothing outside of your products and services to give to them. So you might say, well, Sonia, as a brand, our products and services are how we give to the communities we're serving. Why should we do anything different for underrepresented and underserved communities? What's wrong with that? Let's walk through why extraction only is problematic. Let's replace in this example, underrepresented and underserved communities for vulnerable communities because they are more vulnerable than other communities for a variety of systemic factors that are at play that make it harder for them to succeed and thrive. So now in this case of extraction, we have another brand that is purely taking from them for capital gain, and it feels unfair and super selfish. Let's use a real life example. Each year during Pride Month, there are a slew of brands who paint their logos with the rainbow and offer limited edition Pride products. Unfortunately, there are a lot of brands that are doing this for the purpose of extraction, to make money off of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies. They don't actually care about them and their well-being. So last year, when Bud Light got all the backlash from the influencer promotion they did with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney, this is a prime example of extraction at play. In honor of Dylan's 100 Days of Girlhood, the Bud Light team sent her a can of Bud Light with her face on it. Dylan briefly showed the can in a video she posted on her socials as a sponsored ad. After a ton of drama ensued when Bud Light customers started boycotting the brand, throwing out their Bud Light, Kid Rock was even shooting cases of Bud Light out in the field, and some of Bud Light customers even spewed hateful comments to Dylan and the transgender community. A few months later, Dylan posted on Instagram and TikTok a video that addressed what happened to her as a result of that Bud Light mention. She said, what transpired from that video was more bullying and transphobia than I could have ever imagined. And I should have made this video months ago, but I didn't. The reason why, Mulvaney said, was because she was scared. Dylan went on to add that she waited for things to get better. Quote, but surprise, they haven't really. And I was waiting for the brand to reach out to me, but they never did. Bud Light never reached out to Mulvaney, despite all the hatred that was spewed her way because of a sponsored post that she did for them. So did Bud Light do the ad because they actually care about the LGBTQ plus community and they want to include them and want them to see themselves represented? Or did they just do it to win more the LGBTQ plus community so more than would buy Bud Light? 
their actions in response to the negativity they received from their customers signals that extraction was really their objective, or at least that's the message their actions are sending. Because they couldn't even be bothered to check in on an influencer to see how she was doing based upon the hate she was receiving as a result of a sponsored post for them. And let alone they didn't even say or do anything to attempt to shut down the transphobia threats and bullying. No bueno. Fran Torado is a writer, editor, and community maker for all things queer. Back in 2019, Fran posted this fantastic thread on what was then Twitter that really captured the heart of how brands extract from the LGBTQ plus community during Pride Month. Fran wrote... Good morning. Happy June to all brands launching a Pride campaign. A reminder, you are about to capitalize on our identities, marginalization for corporate gain. It is therefore worth giving a second thought to your limited edition rainbow product. Here, let me help. And then some heart emojis. All right. So it says, the following are ineffective, vacuous, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, ways to engage with a queer community. Limited edition rainbow products, vague love is love messaging, disembodied handholding, a t-shirt, which we are all well aware is the lowest cost endeavor with the fastest turnaround. Any for-profit venture without a queer nonprofit partner. Having a queer nonprofit partner but donating less than 15% of the proceeds. Having a queer nonprofit partner but not disclosing the amount you plan to donate, which we only read as a thinly veiled not that much. I'm looking at you, Ralph Lauren. <laughs> that was Sonia speaking, by the way. <laughs> Go back to Fran. Recycling last year's Pride campaign. Straight cis people developing your campaigns. Underpaying queer trans people to develop your campaigns. Underpaying queer trans artists to create original work for your for-profit products. Using a rainbow in lieu of an actual idea. Fran goes on to give um, some recommendations that brands can take into account to not simply be extracting from the community during Pride Month. Extraction from a vulnerable community for your own gain without giving anything of significance back to them is harmful and something you should not do from an ethics standpoint. All right, so I've got two more ethical considerations in inclusive marketing for you. We'll tackle them after this short break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron or could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs in a full 360 view of every customer so your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, the fourth ethical consideration for you in the world of inclusive marketing is all about perpetuating negative stereotypes. 
All right, so I've talked a bit about this in other episodes, but wanted to dig into it a bit more here. A part of the problem with underrepresented and underserved communities is that sometimes when they are represented, it is in a way that causes more harm than good. I did an episode early on in this podcast with Jelaine Santiago, where she talked about the little representation she saw of Asian women when she was growing up. And when she did, she often found that it was a silent friend on the sidelines. To her, as a young, impressionable Asian girl, only seeing herself portrayed on TV and in movies as the silent friend made it feel like people like her didn't have a voice. I love my chat with Jelaine, so go have a listen if you haven't already. It's episode nine, Why Differences Are Profitable. As always, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes for you. Okay, so I've seen a number of commercials that perpetuate the negative stereotype of the angry Black woman or that only represent a limited narrative of beauty. Gender stereotypes run rampant in advertising as well. A Gap ad in the UK came under fire a while back for perpetuating gender stereotypes with kids. In one campaign that received a lot of complaints, a little boy is wearing a graphic tee that says, The Little Scholar, your future starts here. Shirts plus graphic tees equals genius idea. And then the image of the little girl that's right beside it says, The Social Butterfly, chambray shirts plus logo sweaters are the talk of the playground. I'll drop a link to this campaign into the show notes so you can see it. The UK takes harmful narratives of gender stereotypes seriously and has even issued a ban on them by the Advertising Standards Authority, known as the ASA. The ASA says that they implemented the ban because they found evidence that harmful stereotypes, quote, restrict the choices, aspirations, and opportunities of children young people, and adults. And these stereotypes can be reinforced by some advertising, which plays a part in unequal gender outcomes, unquote. ASA Chief Executive Guy Parker stated that, quote, our evidence shows how harmful gender stereotypes and ads can contribute to inequality in society with costs for all of us. Put simply, we found that some portrayals and ads can, over time, play a part in limiting people's potential. Now, the UK has data on gender stereotypes and the harm it causes. And I'd venture to say that harmful stereotypes and narratives across the board cause harm. And as marketers and business leaders, we have a moral responsibility to not perpetuate these stereotypes and cause further harm to individuals and society on the whole. Okay, the fifth ethical consideration that we're going to talk about today is all about being performative, or rather the bait and the switch. Nobody likes a bait and switch. But often enough, that's what happens when brands present as if they are one thing when they actually aren't. Me and Jonathan were watching a docuseries on Netflix recently where someone explained that in many instances when eggs are labeled cage-free, In a lot of cases, it doesn't mean that the chickens were roaming free and happy on a farm somewhere, but rather they were in a battery cage that is 67 square inches, or as one source, the Human League says, amounts to about the area of a piece of lined paper. When I heard that, I felt like I'd been duped. I thought I was buying one thing, but it turns out it wasn't what I thought or the way it seemed to be promoted. Now, there are other examples of brands being performative, which exists in both activism and in marketing. 
Like in examples of greenwashing, where a brand will tout its commitment to the environment or the strides they are making and the donations they are giving to environmentally focused charities as a way to convince and persuade consumers that they are sustainable and helping the environment. They do this and promote that they are green in their marketing when actually their practices are doing more harm than good. Volkswagen was accused of this some years back when they admitted to fitting their cars, including the Beetle, Jetta, and Golf, with software designed to give false readings on emissions tests so it would pass them. Ugh. Here's how one writer and researcher at the University of Pennsylvania described the scandal. The, quote, cheating cars, as they are called in Alexander and Schwant's paper in the Review of Economic Studies, were first sold in the U.S. in 2008. They were touted as environmentally conscious choice and earned awards such as Green Car of the Year. Later investigations, however, found the cars, software-acted emissions-controlled, worked only under testing conditions. On the road, these controls were disabled and the cars generated high levels of particular matter and gases that are known to worsen lung function, exacerbate asthma and heart disease, and create smog. Brands do this kind of bait and switch when it comes to inclusive marketing as well, and it happens even when there isn't malintent. But as we've discussed here on this podcast before, intention is not the marker of success. It is the impact it has on the consumer and communities. Last year, I came across a post on LinkedIn from the lovely Lola Bakery, who was a guest on this show on episode 72, Why Brands Should Practice Responsible Marketing. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes for you. So in this post, Lola is calling out a brand that she loves and supports, Canva, for the use of what appears to be performative stock photography. Here's what Lola wrote. I got to catch a bit of hashtag Canva create today, and it was in all caps fabulous. But if there are no black people actually participating as speakers, and she's put in parentheses, not entertainers, speakers, should the persistent stock photo on the streaming page and promotional materials be an unnamed black individual and she put in quotes for the vibes. And then she writes, she, she tags Zach Kitschke, who is a CMO of Canva. You know, I'm a huge fan and devoted customer. Asking this question publicly so we can lovingly co-create a shared understanding of the line between real and performative representation. I'm honestly still on the fence on this one. It reminds me of when I read something in the trades that uses black stock photography for the header image, but doesn't actually quote any black experts. Is it an attempt to be inclusive? Is it an attempt to signal cool? Is it both? Should we be okay with it? Are you okay with it? All right, so to be clear, I'm not okay with it. On this particular post, Zach Kitschke, Canvas CMO, responded in a loving way with a commitment to do better, which Lola remarked about on her post. But here's the gist of it. In your quest to showcase more diverse visual imagery, The imagery needs to be true and representative of what people will actually find when they engage and interact with your brand. If your goal is to showcase the diversity of your company and you include a picture of the one Black woman on your team and all of your promotion materials, and then someone comes and joins your company and finds out it isn't diverse at all, that's a bait and switch. If you put photos up, stock or not, that make it seem like your customer base, your event, or your team is diverse, and it really isn't anywhere close to being representative, Rethink that as being performative. 
bait and switch, performative marketing, not where we want to be from an ethics perspective when it comes to inclusive marketing, presents accurate narratives of what exists in your business today. It's totally okay to talk about where you want to go in the future, but be honest and transparent about where you are today. Do not mislead people into thinking you are something you are not. Do not mislead people into thinking you are more inclusive than you actually are. So what's the bottom line here with the whole bait and switch performative marketing thing? Don't do it. Okay, we covered a lot in this episode, but we needed to. There are plenty of ethical considerations associated with inclusive marketing, and I just haven't really seen very many people talking about it. So I wanted to make sure you were thinking about this. So how do you avoid doing things that are unethical as you work to engage people from underrepresented and underserved communities, particularly those that are already vulnerable? Keep these two questions at the forefront of your mind, your thinking and your actions. First off, does what I'm doing leave the consumer or the customer better off than the way I found them? And the second one is very similar to it, but expands the context. Does what I'm doing leave the consumer or the customer's community better off than the way I found them? As you are asking these questions, go through the exercise of evaluating if there are ways in which what you want to do, are doing, or planning to do will cause harm. Ask yourself, will the campaign, the products, the services, and experiences you deliver to this vulnerable community reduce their expected welfare? This is also why it is super important to have a diverse and representative team that has people with the lived experiences from the communities you want to serve, because perhaps if you aren't part of these communities, it is likely that it may be even more difficult for you to identify ways in which something could cause harm. Cultural intelligence is critical. Not being aware of how something could cause harm doesn't prevent the harm from occurring. So as inclusive marketers, let's be in the harm prevention business. It's the ethical thing to do. All right, that's it for today's episode. If you like the show, I'd so love it if you'd share it with a friend, colleague, or your network. And while you're at it, leave a rating and review for the show in your podcast player of choice. It really does go a long way toward helping more people discover the show And hopefully that means we're all doing less harm and doing a better job of supporting more people and making them less vulnerable. Are you getting the inclusion and marketing newsletter? If not, really, what are you even doing? Each week I send news, insights, tips, and other good stuff to help you build a brand that attracts and retains a bigger and more diverse customer base by making more people feel like they belong with you. Go to inclusionandmarketing.com slash newsletter to get signed up. I'll also drop a link to it in the show notes for you. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.